Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to a history of Europe. Key battles. The Battle of Hattin, part four of four. In the year 1176, Saladin was well on his way to controlling both Syria and Egypt. His next target would be the Crusader states on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. In order to gain support among fellow Muslims, he proclaimed himself leader of the Jihad against the Christians, even though in truth he dedicated far more time and resources in his early years against other Muslims. The position of the Crusader states, meanwhile, had been weakened over the previous three decades. The county of Edessa had been annihilated and the county of Antioch reduced to a thin strip on the coast. The counties of Tripoli and Jerusalem at least were still in reasonable condition. It was unfortunate for them that at this time their largest potential ally in the region was suffering its own problems. Emperor Manuel of the Byzantine Empire had on the whole ruled wisely and effectively. He had come to a greater appreciation of Western European sensitivities and worked hard to maintain good relations with his fellow Christians, despite their many differences. In spite of this, he had been forced to defend his lands against aggression from the northern kingdom of Sicily, of Roger II. This had sapped his resources from what he would have liked to have engaged in, namely the recovery of the central Anatolian plain, lost after the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. In the two generations since the First Crusade, the original rather condescending attitude of the Byzantines towards the Westerners had been replaced by a more pragmatic attitude, at least within the imperial court. Byzantine Crusader relations remained, however, ill-fated. The Emperor provided a fleet of ships to help the Crusader states attack Cairo, but the expedition was a failure, and to make matters worse, most ships sunk in a storm on their return to Constantinople. Next, Manuel, in 1176, finally free from border concerns in the west, led a campaign against the Turks of Anatolia. He presented this to the west as a crusade. After all, the pacification of the region would have been of direct benefit to future crusaders. The first two crusades had shown all too clearly the dangers of Turkish tribes able to run freely around the lands between Constantinople and the Holy Land. The only alternative to this land route for Westerners into the Levant was by sea, which was very 
expensive. Of course, it was also very much in the interests of the Byzantines to control the region. Anatolia had plenty of resources, agricultural, mining and timber, which prior to Manzika the empire had been able to effectively exploit. By the 1170s, the Byzantines had regained the coastal regions in the north and south and west of Anatolia, but that left the problem of a long frontier to protect. The Turkish settlers, meanwhile, after their initial disruption to the region, soon established an economy of stock-raising. They developed relations with the other local inhabitants, who bought Turkish goods such as meat and hides in exchange for their own goods, a trade which could be taxed to some extent by the imperial government. It was not impossible that these Turks could in future be integrated into the Byzantine Empire, which after all had always been above race. Manuel saw the only way of achieving this was the subjection of the local leaders to his authority. So to this aim he led a vast army into the heart of Anatolia. However, on the 17th of September, 1176, as his forces were meandering their way through the countryside, they were ambushed by the army of Kilic Aslan II, in what became known as the Battle of Mirio Kefalon. The Byzantine troops were trapped in a narrow valley and slaughtered where they stood. Despite having achieved such a crushing victory, the Sultan offered surprisingly good terms, merely requiring Manuel to retreat and dismantle two fortresses that he had recently constructed in the area. From that point in time, however, central Anatolia was lost to the Byzantines, who became no more than onlookers in the events of the Middle East. Manuel died in 1180, and his place was taken by an 11-year-old boy, leading to a succession crisis that crippled the empire. The Crusader states were suffering likewise from their own succession crisis. The reason was that the young king of Jerusalem, Baldwin IV, suffered from leprosy. He knew his days, therefore, were numbered, so he tried his best to secure a future for his realm after his death. His best efforts, unfortunately, were hampered by court politics. His parents had been the former king of Jerusalem, Amalric, and his first wife, Agnes of Courtenay, who also together had a daughter named Sibylla. Later, Baldwin's father divorced Agnes and married a Byzantine princess, Maria Comnena, and they had one child out of that marriage, a girl named Isabella. In the beginning of his reign, Baldwin was aged just 13. Since he was too young to rule, Count Raymond III of Tripoli was appointed as his regent. Raymond had himself inherited his own title at the age of 12 in the year 1152. He had been a prisoner at Aleppo between 1164 and 1173, but was eventually ransomed. During his captivity, he was one of the few Franks to learn to get by in Arabic, and afterwards led the faction of the Doves, attempting to build relations with, or at least trying not to provoke, the neighbouring Muslims. King Amaric's death allowed the return to court of the Queen Mother, 
Agnes and gave her the opportunity to involve herself, many would say meddle in, court affairs. She came into direct conflict with Maria Comnena, her son's stepmother. The two women hated each other, and when Maria remarried to Balian of Ibelin, she placed herself firmly on the side of the doves. Agnes, in opposition, sided with the hawks in the kingdom. As Borden was a sick young man, he was unsure who he could trust. Another significant figure was Reynaud of Châtillon. Reynaud had served as a knight in the Second Crusade. He decided to stay, and through marriage became the Prince of Antioch in 1153. He has a reputation for ill-considered aggression, demonstrated early on by an attack on Byzantine-controlled Cyprus. His forces pillaged the island, despite the fact that its inhabitants were Christians. In response, Emperor Manuel marched into Syria and forced Reynald to grovel and beg for forgiveness, and to pay homage to him. Soon after this, in 1161, Reynald was captured by a Muslim army while he was engaged in a plundering raid against some Syrian and Armenian peasants. When finally released after 16 years, he again found himself a favourable marriage and became Lord of Transjordan, an ill-defined region east of the River Jordan on the far edge of Christian-held lands and besides the routes well used by Muslim caravans and pilgrims. Reynaud planted himself firmly in the camp of the Hawks, in direct opposition to Raymond of Tripoli. The resolution of the court rivalries appeared to lay in the fate of Baldwin's sister, Sibylla, and in 1175 the young princess found a good match, William Longsword. Related to both King of France, Louis VII, and the German Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, William's credentials were impeccable, and he brought with him considerable wealth. He was courteous and considerate, and Sibylla appeared happy with the match. The year 1177 started well, on the news that Sibylla was pregnant. At last, prospects seemed to have improved. If, as appeared likely, Baldwin did not live long, then Sibylla could rule alongside her husband as regent, until the child she bore came of age and could rule in his own right. But fate struck another cruel blow when William died of malaria in June of that year. Soon afterwards came news that Sibylla had safely delivered a son, also named Baldwin, and at least an heir had been provided to help secure the future. King Baldwin believed it necessary to find a new husband for his sister to secure the continuity of the royal line. The man chosen was Guy of Lusignan, a nobleman of France, and it was hoped he would bring with him an increased Western interest in the Crusader states. Guy was charming, good-looking and a good soldier, but in the political sphere he was weak and easily led and as such vulnerable to manipulation from more strong-willed characters. The wedding saw the loss of influence of Raymond of Tripoli and his ally, Balian of Ibelin. The year 1177 also saw the successful defence of the kingdom 
against an attack by Saladin. With a Muslim army raiding deep within Frankish territory, a Christian army led by the king, with Reynard of Châtillon by his side, counter-attacked near a hill known as Mount Gisard. When Reynard unleashed a cavalry charge on the Muslim invaders, the Sultan was caught unprepared, and his numerically superior force was soon thrown into retreat. Saladin barely managed to escape with his life. His men, fleeing for their lives, were hunted down for more than ten miles, until nightfall finally gave the Muslims some respite. It was a humiliating retreat for Saladin, although there had been heavy casualties on both sides. For the Franks it was a morale-boosting victory, but at the danger of making them overconfident. Just two years later, the Sultan regains his pride and the initiative. Baldwin had ordered the construction of a huge new fortress at the strategic Jacob's Ford crossing point over the upper River Jordan. Saladin besieged the castle, which fell before a relief army could arrive, at the cost of many Frankish lives. The Crusader states could ill afford many more such defeats due to the limits on manpower. However, Saladin's resources were also stretched, and so the two sides agreed to a two-year truce, which probably came as relief to both, especially since a drought had set in that would last five years and cause widespread famine in the region. Egypt, of course, lies on the mighty Nile, and consequently escaped the drought. The caravan convoys of food supplies between Egypt and Syria were very important. Saladin had regained these routes from the Franks, but the caravans still remained vulnerable to Reynard of Châtillon's fief of Transjordan and its castle garrisons. Reynard cultivated good relations with several Bedouin Arab tribes, many of whom had deep grievances and religious disagreements with Saladin and the other largely Turkish ruling elite of the region. During the winter of 1181-82, Reynaud led a campaign of raids against the caravans. The main strategy seems to have been to try and distract Saladin's attention from his accumulation of power in northern Syria. Hopefully this would prevent, or at least delay, Saladin surrounding the Crusader states. The next winter, Reynard of Châtillon organised a daring raid on the Red Sea. Ships constructed in the Mediterranean were taken as prefabricated pieces to be launched in the Gulf of Aqaba. From there, the naval operations threatened Islam's holiest sites and also interrupted trade between Egypt and India. The attacks no doubt did distract Saladin, as was their aim, and demonstrated Reynard's significant military skills. However, they are most often viewed as a strategic blunder, since the attacks on pilgrims in particular helped unite Muslims behind Saladin against the Westerners. The Sultan sent an irate message to King Baldwin, demanding compensation for these flagrant breaches of the truce but the king was unable to stop Reynard. This demonstrated the type of problem that arose when the leader of the Christians lacked the authority to be able to control the actions of his vassals. 
In retaliation, Saladin invaded Galilee in September 1183. With Baldwin now physically unable to consider taking to the field himself, an army was assembled under the command of Guy, who managed an effective, if unspectacular, job. Guy ordered an ordered advance and, except for minor skirmishes, avoided committing to a pitched battle. Hoping to tempt the Franks to break formation, Saladin withdrew a short distance, but no pursuit was forthcoming, and the two sides took up defensive positions within a mile of each other, near the village of Anjalut. A stalemate held for nearly two weeks before the Sultan finally decided to retreat across the Jordan. The next month Saladin attacked again, this time into Transjordan to besiege the castle of Karak. At the time the castle was hosting a wedding between the king's half-sister Isabella and Humphrey of Toron. Back in Jerusalem, meanwhile, King Baldwin squabbled with Guy over the rights to the realm. Perhaps persuaded by Raymond III of Tripoli and the Ibelin brothers, Baldwin turned on Guy and rescinded his regency. While Karak lay under threat, the king brought together a meeting to discuss the selection of a new heir, and in the end the choice fell to Sibylla's five-year-old son by her first husband, also called Baldwin. With this arrangement sealed, King Baldwin set out to Karak, probably carried on a litter due to his failing health. Raymond was appointed field commander and led the army to relieve the fortress. Saladin was unwilling to confront the Franks in open battle and again retreated, allowing the leper king to enter the desert fortress as a victorious saviour. The next year Saladin pursued a strategy of cautious aggression, continuing to pressure and test the Franks, avoiding battle when the enemy refused to fight on his terms. Perhaps unaware of the depth of factionalism that was crippling the Crusader states, he attempted no decisive invasion of Palestine. His main concern at this time appeared to be his attempts to extend his authority into Mesopotamia, specifically the city of Mosul. In December 1185, Saladin fell ill with a fever and for nearly three months was feared close to death. The history of the Middle East could have been different if Saladin had passed away at this moment. Instead, he recovered, accepted a compromise with Mosul, and concentrated his energies on renewing his attacks on the Crusader states. By this point, the crisis of leadership within Jerusalem had deepened. As he was dying despite his misgivings about Raymond of Tripoli's loyalty, the king appointed the count as regent. Baldwin died in May 1185 at the age of 23 and was buried alongside his father, Amalric, in the Holy Sepulchre. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Historians used to regard Baldwin IV, the Leper King's reign, as an almost unmitigated disaster for the Crusader states. He was criticised for selfishly retaining the crown long after the point when he should have abdicated. Even if he felt duty-bound not to abdicate, his vacillation on deciding a successor only helped contribute to the embittered factionalism just when the Franks needed unity. His reputation has recovered somewhat in recent years, with the emphasis on his display of great physical courage and enduring his disability. He deserves at least sympathy for the nightmarish predicament in which he found himself. The historian W.B. Bartlett, in his book Islam's War Against the Crusaders, writes how given the horrific disease that blighted his all-too-short life, he had achieved far more than anyone had the right to expect. His nephew succeeded as Baldwin V, but the boy king was sickly and survived only one year, triggering a bitter dispute over the succession. Raymond of Tripoli, who had been regent, attempted to seize the throne, but was outmaneuvered by Sibylla and her husband, Guy. Having lost control of the court to the rival faction, Raymond of Tripoli was forced to retire to his home in Galilee. Guy, fearing Raymond as an opponent, stripped him of his rights to Beirut and commanded him to account for public monies that had been given to him while acting as regent. The accusation that Raymond had been dishonest in the use of his kingdom's money was an insult of the First Order and only served to heighten tensions between the Christian factions. In March 1187, Saladin started establishing a camp just south of Damascus as preparation for renewed attack on the Crusader states. Then, on the 30th of April, a Muslim delegation sought permission from Count Raymond of Tripoli to cross his lands in Galilee, promising to cause no damage. The Count reluctantly agreed, perhaps believing he had little choice, but still smarting at the insult from Guy. However, serious hostilities broke out the next day between a Muslim reconnaissance force and relatively small Frankish contingent near the springs of Cresson. A number of Franks were killed and Raymond was left to rue his decision. One positive outcome of this setback, 
for the Christians was that it persuaded the factions to patch up their differences. Raymond rode immediately to Guy, in an act that would have been extremely painful at a personal level, paid homage to the new king. Guy, for all his thoughts, realised that the kingdom needed Raymond to help confront the Muslim army assembling on the border, and so accepted the reconciliation. At the end of June 1187, a large invasion force headed by Saladin entered the kingdom of Jerusalem. Guy summoned his barons together at Acre and managed to assemble a large army himself, perhaps the largest the Crusader states had ever seen. First, Saladin laid siege to the city of Tiberias on the shores of Lake Galilee. It proved no obstacle and fell in an hour. Inside was Raymond of Tripoli's wife, who fled to the citadel. Trapped inside, she dispatched messengers to seek help. The messengers were allowed to pass by Saladin, who was happy to lure the crusaders into an attack. Having received the news, the crusaders were divided as to how to respond. Despite the fact that it was his wife in the citadel, Raymond urged that the army should stay where it was, on the defensive. He believed that Saladin would treat her honourably, and that an offensive move would be too risky. The stakes were higher still, because the garrisons responsible for protecting the towns and castles for Outremer were stripped of nearly all their men in their efforts to raise the army. Defeat at this battle could risk the very survival of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. The Frankish army assembled at the ancient settlement of Sephoria. To pass beyond here was to pass the point of no return. Here was water and pasture for the army and the horses, and was a good defensive position, which Saladin would have trouble to attack. Beyond Sephoria, watering places were few and far between. The land not quite desert, but at the height of summer was little better. On the other hand, Saladin was close to water and could thus keep his men supplied. By the end of a very heated discussion, with the usual hawkish side demanding an attack and the doves advocating caution, Guy agreed to stay put. But during the night he fatefully changed his mind. The king had been persuaded that it would be shameful not to come to the rescue of a captured noblewoman. Perhaps as well Guy's decision was influenced by the fact that he was a new king who felt the need to bolster his authority by a great victory over the infidel. So, on the morning of the 3rd of July, the army received orders that they were to march after all. Foremost among the troops were the Templars and the Hospitallers, but there was also a large number of secular knights and foot soldiers, as well as Turkopoles, that is, children of mixed Greek and Turkish parentage who fought as light cavalry. The infantry used a variety of weapons, including pikes, javelins, bows and axes, while the knights used a lance and a sword. Guy hoped to reach Tiberias, or at least the shores of the Galilean Sea, by the end of the day. But once news reached Saladin that the Franks were on the move, he immediately sent small groups of attackers to harass the Christians, 
He then moved the bulk of his force to the open plateau, blocking their path, and ordered any wells in the immediate region to be filled in. Around noon, the Franks paused for a brief respite beside the village of Turan, whose minor spring could temporarily quench their thirst, but not at all adequate to the needs of many thousands of men. Then, when the Crusaders continued their march eastward, Saladin sent a small contingent to take possession of Turan, barring any possibility of a retreat. The Christian army marched along a relatively flat and broad valley, spread in a line perhaps two kilometres long. Thanks to the harassment from Saladin's men, they were making nothing like the progress they were hoping for. Near the day's end, they made a change of plan. Believing they could not fight their way direct through Saladin's army, Raymond persuaded Guy that their only hope for survival was to veer left and head for the springs by the village of Hattin. From there they could march down to Tiberias the following day. The hills nearby, known as the Horns of Hattin, were surrounded by ancient Bronze Age walls, which could provide some defence for the infantry. Visible from there was the welcoming blue of Lake Tiberias, 12 kilometres away. The change of plan had its merits, but moving off the main road slowed down the Christian army even more. Saladin reacted immediately and ordered a division to race round and block the route, demonstrating the great speed and manoeuvrability of his forces. A number of Frankish knights charged against the enemy, but were repelled, forcing them to make do with pitching camp in the middle of the plateau, without access to water. Presumably, Guy hoped that, rested and reorganised, their men could make a dash for Hattin the next morning. In fact, the tired and thirsty Christians were kept awake all night by the increasingly confident Muslims playing drums, singing and praying. The next morning, on the 4th of July, Saladin started up fires, sending clouds of smoke through the exhausted and dehydrated Frankish army. According to an anonymous continuation of the history of William of Tyre, quote, Saladin ordered that they should light the fires in the barriers which he had made all around the Christians. They soon did this, and the fires burned vigorously, and the smoke from the fires was great, and this, together with the heat of the sun above them, caused them discomfort and great harm. The Saracens surrounded the host and shot their darts through the smoke and so wounded and killed men and horses. Unquote. Saladin waited until midday to make a full attack, prolonging the suffering of his victims until the sun was high in the sky. The Franks formed up with crossbowmen and for a time were successful in keeping off the attackers but the cavalry began to suffer further serious losses among the horses, fatally weakening their offensive capability. The morale of the hard-pressed, smoke-blinded and desperately thirsty Frankish infantry began to crack and many tried to flee. This left their cavalry exposed to Turkish horse archers and their horses began to fall in large numbers. And so it was left to the knights to offer the last resistance. 
as well-trained and equipped soldiers and proud members of a high social class, they fought bravely to at least give themselves a chance of turning the tide against the enemy. About this time, Raymond of Tripoli and Balian of Ibelin led what became a notorious charge against the enemy. It was a serious attempt to break the Muslim encirclement, but the enemy simply swung aside and let Raymond and his contingent rush harmlessly past. Muslim horsemen followed them to force them off the battlefield. Raymond would later be accused of treachery for this act. With the loss of more men in this way, Guy sought to make a last stand on the horns of Hattin. The king pitched his red royal flag and prepared those knights who remained for a final desperate attack. Realising that their only hope lay in striking directly at Saladin, they repeatedly launched heavy charges and were only just held back, once coming close to reaching the sultan. But eventually the Christian royal tent fell, marking the end of the battle. It had been a brutal struggle with heavy losses on both sides, but far more so for the Christians. Many infantry and horses lay dead, and the surviving knights sank in utter exhaustion to be captured. Saladin spared the life of the king and ransomed most of the barons. But for his most despised enemy, Reynard of Chatillon, he ordered a beheading as revenge for the repeated provocations to the years. The Templars and Hospitallers were likewise given little mercy. Forced to decide between conversion to Islam or death, almost all chose the latter. With his troops flushed with victory, Saladin used the momentum of the victory to retake as much of the Crusader states as possible before winter came. The task was made easier by the fact that most of the Kingdom of Jerusalem's fighting men had been at the Battle of Hattin, and so now dead or captured or scattered. Few got home in time to significantly help defend the castles and fortified towns, and in some places the local Muslim and Jewish population used the situation as an opportunity to rise up against the Westerners. Saladin took best advantage of the situation by wasting no time. The town of Tiberias surrendered almost immediately, as did Acre, the most important Frankish port. The Sultan directed most of his efforts to sweeping up coastal settlements and ports, and almost all fell in the next few weeks and months. Generous terms were offered to those who quickly submitted, and these deals were upheld. When confronted with the choice of hopeless defiance or assured survival, most enemy garrisons surrendered. Many refugees ended up in the city of Tyre, from where Saladin hoped the Westerners would sail home. Instead, the port would become the last bastion of Latin resistance to Muslim power. The ultimate goal for Saladin, having predicated the war on the notion of jihad, was the recapture of the holy city of Jerusalem. Knowing the city would not so easily surrender, he came with tens of thousands of troops and heavy siege weapons, ready for a prolonged confrontation. Balian of Ibelin assumed the command of the defences, but he had too few trained warriors available to offer much resistance. After only nine days, 
on the 29th of September, Muslim sappers made a major breach in the city walls, and the day after, Balin was forced to broker a surrender. The historian Thomas Ashbridge writes how the Arab sources indicate that Saladin fully intended to sack Jerusalem. However, Balian threatened that unless equitable conditions of surrender were agreed, the Latins would fight to the very last man and destroy Jerusalem's Islamic holy places and execute thousands of Muslim prisoners held inside the city. This was a desperate gambit, but it forced the Sultan's hand, and begrudgingly he agreed a deal. Credit should be given to the Sultan that in this case, as in others, the terms he agreed were generous, and more importantly still, they were honoured. By contemporary standards, in an age with numerous atrocities committed by all sides, Saladin acted on the whole honourably, and never with unnecessary cruelty. On the other hand, his record is not unblemished. There were occasions when he did act ruthlessly, such as the slaughter of all Knights Templar and Hospitallers after the Battle of Hattin. And so the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which the Crusaders had taken nearly ninety years to build, was lost in two months, with the exception of the city of Tyre. Further north, just Antioch and Tripoli remained, apart from a few isolated castles. As with previous battles, I would like to emphasise how the events could, at numerous points, have potentially turned out differently. The success of the First Crusade was anything but certain, and in fact heavily against the odds. It would almost certainly not have succeeded had the Muslim world not by coincidence been so politically fragmented at the time. Likewise, the survival of the Crusader states, and consequently a Christian-controlled eastern Mediterranean coast, was by no means always doomed to failure. The significant milestones in their downfall, the failure of the Second Crusade to take Damascus, the later failure to take Egypt, and the Battle of Hattin could all have turned out very different. One big difference between the Crusader states and the Muslim states is that the former were politically fragmented and lacked strong leaders, while the latter had the fortune of possessing two great leaders, Nur al-Din and Saladin. I have spent a fair bit of time on the build-up to the First Crusade and then the story of the Crusader states in the 12th century, because they are an important part of the early medieval European history. They should be seen in their historical context and not be confused with anachronistic comparisons such as with 19th century colonialism. An important reason for why the Crusades occurred is the resurgence of Western Europe in the 10th and 11th centuries. The region had recovered after the darker days of an ongoing attacks from Vikings, Saracens and the Magyars, and was now in the process of expansion. The Crusades should be seen in the context of a period when a new warrior class, the Knights, especially the Normans, emerged. New military technologies, as well as forms of political organisation, 
allowed them to spread their power from France and Western Germany across Europe and make attempts to go beyond into the Middle East. So far we have seen them establish kingdoms in Britain and Italy. In the same period they were also extending their authority in the southwest into the Iberian Peninsula and northeast into the Baltic region. The next part of the story of the Crusader States is the Third Crusade, a campaign triggered by the fall of Jerusalem in 1187. I'd like to remind you about the Facebook page for this podcast. It's located at www.facebook.com slash historyeuropenet or just search for History of Europe Key Battles. They are put on extra information such as maps or images to go with the podcast. I'm always interested in hearing your comments or suggestions about the podcast, either through Facebook or through the blog site, which is www.historyeurope.net, or you can write to me directly at carl at historyeurope.net. I hope you can join me again next time where we'll talk about the Third Crusade, where Saladin is taken on by, among others, Richard the Lionheart. Thank you for listening, and goodbye until next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.